Well, good morning, UCC. Uh, like Marty said, my name is Tyler, and I am thrilled to be here today. If I'm looking uh, a little slimmer than I did last time, some of you saw me, uh, it's because I've had the stomach bug this week. And so I am making my grand return and comeback today. With, I saw you all lean back a little bit. That's all right. I'm feeling much better. I just haven't eaten uh, as much as normal. So if anything weird gets said today, we're going to blame it on the lack of calories and agree to forget, all right? Uh, and then if anything brilliant happens, uh, as always, it's, it's not me, uh, it's the Lord, right? That's what we say in places like this. Uh, I am thoroughly, thoroughly happy, very, very happy to be here. I should let you know UCC came into my life and welcomed me with open arms at a moment when I really needed care. Uh, so it is a sincere joy to be here this morning. Uh, UCC has been a gift to me, and I'm hoping to return the favor. I only arrived at UCC in February of 2022, and so I haven't been around here that long, so I thought it might be helpful before we begin if I give just a little context to who I am and where I'm coming from before we start. Is that all right? Just a little context. Uh, so here it is. I moved to Cincinnati in 2019. Before I came to Cincinnati, I was in Kansas City where I was a pastor at the downtown campus of a large multi-site church in the city. We had an art gallery in our space that I got to supervise. Kansas City, uh, if you haven't heard, is home to Finger Lickin' Barbecue. We have the World War I Museum and Memorial. We now have the most famous player in the NFL who is, <laughs> right, Travis Kelsey. That's right, you heard, okay, some Swifties here. But before Kansas City, uh, I was in Chicago. In Chicago, I attended Divinity School in the northern suburbs, and I also did event production uh, for two organizations. One was the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The other was Campus Crusade for Christ, so I'll let you decide which one had the bigger fog budget. Uh, but before all that, I worked, some of you have been to a crew conference. Before all that, uh, I worked as a children's librarian in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is my hometown, and I loved working at the library. Uh, I love kiddos. It's why if my makeup looks like it's smudged, it's because the kids were here earlier and I just cried everywhere. Uh, just kidding. Uh, love kids, and I love crafts. Uh, so it was awesome to get paid to do Lego Club, uh, to lead activities with construction paper and crayons. And when I was working at the library, I was reintroduced, and I fell in love with the poetry of Shel Silverstein. And it's been a little while since I've done a story time, and I happen to have this book from Shel here with me. And there is a poem of his that's rattled around in my heart and my mind this week as I've been reflecting on this morning's text and reflecting on the themes of Advent. And so I'd love to read that poem to you as an introduction to our time together in the text this morning. The poem is called Traffic Light, here it is. The traffic light simply would not turn green, so the people stopped to wait. As the traffic rolled and the wind blew cold and the hour grew dark and late. Zoom vroom, trucks, trailers, bikes, and limousines. Clattering by, me oh my, won't that light turn green? But the days turned weeks and the weeks turned months and there on the corner they stood, twiddling their thumbs till the changing comes just the way good people should. And if you walk by that corner now, you may think it's rather strange to see them there as they hopefully gaze with the very same smile on their very same face as they patiently stand 
in the very same place and wait for the light to change. And this, my friends, I want to suggest is the challenge of Advent. In this season on our church calendar that invites us to pause, as Jeremiah said, and to remember that God stepped into this world once and has promised to come back. In this season of waiting and wonder, of awe and anticipation, a season when we're surrounded by sparkling lights and sentimental songs. During Advent, we're reminded beautifully by children of baby Jesus in the manger. We're told God cares so much about us that he moved into our neighborhood. And in our best moments, I imagine we can all feel like God really is engaged in our lives and in our world. But then we look around and things aren't the way we wish they'd be. And we aren't the way we wish we were. And then, as Shell says, weeks turn to months and any kind of change starts to feel slow we're late or impossible, and we begin to wonder if maybe, just maybe, we're those people twiddling our thumbs with the very same smiles on our very same faces, patiently waiting while nothing changes. You see, I'd suggest that none of us are great at waiting, but Advent is a season of waiting a set-aside time in the church calendar when Christians for centuries had leaned into realities like desire and longing. And so the challenge of Advent, it seems to me, is learning how to let waiting produce something beautiful in us, discovering how waiting and longing and wishing and desiring might actually deepen our faith. And so this morning, my, my hope, my humble goal is that we'll each begin to see what this series in Advent seeks to suggest, that the themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love, are the gifts that waiting can give us. And I, of course, because it's the first week of Advent, was invited to speak about the gift of hope. And I was told by Jeremiah, who I love, that I might consider using the lectionary text to prepare this passage. Now, when I started attending UCC, you should know that I thought it was beautiful that this church leans into history and tradition and uses lectionary readings and rhythms to craft its Sunday services. Uh, that was always something I loved about this community until this week. <laughs> because this week's lectionary passage is in one word, intense. Uh, but I sat with it, I reflected on it, I started to see myself in it, and I'm trusting you will too. It comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and begins in verse 24. I'll read it, then I'd like to place it in context and we can reflect on what it means for us. But Mark 13, 24, there Jesus says, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, be alert, 
You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Merry Christmas to you too, Jesus. Um, I, I told you these words from Jesus might feel a little intense at first, and so before we continue, I'd love to place them in context. Jesus shares this teaching with four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, after some extended conflict between himself and the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. In fact, if you flip back a few chapters in Mark, you would notice Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem. And then after Jesus has arrived there, we watch as the religious leaders question his authority. They attempt to trap him in his words by asking him about the imperial tax. They try to stump him on the religious law by asking him about the greatest commandment. They're hurling their best questions at him to see if they can catch him in some kind of faux pas. Simply put, they are after him. But it's not just the Pharisees who are coming for Jesus. Jesus claps back, as the kids say. You can Google that. In March 12, for example, or Mark 12, he tells his followers to watch out for the teachers of the law because they love to be seen in their robes and seated in places of honor, even as they burn through the resources that poor people sacrificially donate to the temple treasury. Now, I know it's hard for us to imagine religious leaders selfishly misusing funds, but apparently that was a problem in Jesus' day. And so this conflict, it's there, it's existing in these chapters leading up to Mark 13, where in verse 1, Mark writes, as Jesus was leaving the temple, so where some of this conflict had taken place, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus replies, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So notice this. After openly feuding with the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus tells his followers in very clear terms that the temple, the grandest building they've likely ever seen, the center of Jewish religious life, the most sacred place they can imagine, the temple will be brought to ruin. So it makes sense then that when they arrive at the Mount of Olives outside the city, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they, they pull Jesus aside to ask more about the temple's fate. They said, okay, well, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And this right here, this moment, is when we have to lean into the text so we don't wind up in crazy town. Because Jesus' words here in Matthew 13 have, in my view, been twisted by many religious leaders who abuse them and the people they lead by capitalizing on our natural fears and anxieties. This is why I got a little angry with the lectionary, because the verses that appear next in Mark 13 have been used time and time again by end times profiteers who announce that this current event 
or that world leader, or this new technology, or this budding conflict are indisputable signs that the world is coming to a close. And then they usually follow that announcement with a plea like this. Uh, See this thing that happened? Uh, You should come join our community, or you should come buy this survival kit, or you should sign this petition so that you'll be safe when everything hits the fan. Does this sound familiar at all? Or was I the only one? Okay, good, good, good. Well, let me be clear. That is not the kind of response that Jesus is trying to produce in those who follow him. As Jesus is sitting there with Peter, James, Andrew, and John, followers remember that he's spent years with. Followers who other gospels tell us expect certain fame and glory and power and notoriety and acclaim because they've been so closely associated with Jesus. Jesus tells them, hey guys, this temple, it's not going to last. In fact, it will be torn apart in your lifetime, and that happened in 70 AD. But then Jesus continues, guys, I've got more bad news. Not only will this temple be torn down, but false teachers will try to deceive you. And I hate to tell you this, but you're going to face beatings and arrest and trials because of your association with me. Jesus says, Things will get pretty bleak. The coronation you're hoping for, it's not right around the corner. You will not profit from knowing me or have your pick of territories or titles. That isn't how this is going to end. It's actually going to get pretty bad. There will be distress, Jesus says, in the first part of the lectionary text for today. But following that distress, he says in verse 24, the Son of Man will come with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect. Jesus says, even when things seem darkest and the coronation doesn't happen and the fame doesn't come your way, don't be misled. I have not forgotten about you and I am coming back for you. And then he says, now learn this from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Jesus says, there are things you can see, like the leaves that come on the fig tree, that will remind you of my nearness and my return. So watch. Be on guard. Be alert. Stay attentive. Open your eyes. Look around you. You'll see that my words are true. Jesus says, put away those end times charts and don't worry about those survival kits. But instead, he says... I know challenges that you cannot possibly imagine will come your way. I know circumstances will weigh you down. I know stories in the news will break your heart. I know you'll find yourself at the end of your rope. I know you'll feel stuck and trapped and stalled like everything's futile and nothing could ever get better. Stay alert, Jesus says. Keep your eyes open. Your temptation will be to forget that I haven't forgotten you, but don't do that, Jesus says. Remember instead, this darkness won't last. I will return. And I think, I think Jesus knew that his followers, whether it was Peter, James, Andrew, and John in the first century, or you and I in the 21st, I think he knew that we would all struggle with the same thing. I think Jesus knew that when we see things getting bad in our world, we find it so easy to forget that God is interested in or engaged with the world that he made, that he came here once and is coming back again. And instead of remembering that, and instead of letting that fuel the stories that we tell ourselves, instead of finding hope in that, we tend towards two other responses, cynicism and avoidance. Cynicism and avoidance. When we experience 
what the novelist George Eliot described as the dim lights and tangled circumstances of, those world, of this world, the things that aren't the way they should be, things that have no good explanation, things that hurt us in ways that are difficult to articulate. When those things come our way, our typical responses, I'd suggest, are cynicism and avoidance. What's cynicism? Well, cynicism is a defense mechanism that declares nothing is as good as it seems. Nothing. Everything that you see, everything you see is going to let you down. That church, that politician, that family member, that coworker, they're, they're going to hurt you. So whatever you do, you know, don't get your hopes up. Whatever you feel now, whatever seems promising, it's not going to last. Just give it time. You see, cynicism masquerades is wisdom. It says, I'm going to cope with hurt, heartache, and disappointment by pretending that I've outsmarted it. It tells itself, I won't be a sucker. I won't get my hopes up. I'm smarter than that. I've seen too much. And what it does is it causes us to stay at a safe distance from everything, from which we make wise-sounding observations about the world around us, even as our hearts and our hopes are wasting away. Cynicism over time produces bitterness, disengagement, and faith-eroding disappointment. When faced with the heavy and hurtful realities of our world, we many times respond with cynicism. Someone even recall, or called it when my reading this week, the religion of our age. That's fascinating to me. So there's cynicism. We also respond with avoidance. Uh, avoidance says, if I'm not looking at it, it's not happening, right? Uh, if I can't see it, it can't hurt me. So I'll look over here and I'll look over there. I'll distract myself with this and that. I'll pretend everything's fine even when it isn't. And, you know, I can't think about avoidance without thinking of this next foot of, of a Netflix show, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Have any of y'all seen Kimmy Schmidt? Okay, I love it. It came out in 2015. Uh, the show was created by Tina Fey, so you can tell it's good, and it centers on 29-year-old Kimmy Schmidt as she adjusts to life after being rescued from a cult where she and three other women were held captive in an underground bunker for 15 years. I know the premise sounds heavy. It's a comedy and a good one. And in one episode, Kimmy, <laughs> who's come out of the bunker, she started work as a nanny. She tells her employer and friend Jacqueline, she says, do you know when I get really sad, when I was sad in the bunker, when I used to get really sad, I would jump, I would put my hands up, up and down, I would jump in to say, I'm not really here. I'm not really here. I'm not really here. And they try to turn it into a mantra and sell books. But that, my friends, is avoidance. If cynicism insists that everything is ruined, avoidance says nothing is. It insists on pretending that everything is fine, especially when it isn't. But remember, Jesus knew you and I would face the same challenges that Peter, James, Andrew, and John would face. He knew that cynicism and avoidance would be easy answers when things get dark, and that's why he said, keep watch, be attentive, Open your eyes. You see, if the dim lights and tangled circumstances of this world have led you to cynicism, or if the cruelty and chaos that you've experienced has made it easier to close your eyes and cover your ears, know this, hope doesn't need you to deny reality. Hope doesn't require you to make things worse than they are, and hope doesn't require you to imagine things are better than they are. Hoping isn't pretending. Hope is better than that. It's truer than that. 
Hope simply asks that you and I see things exactly as they are, which is to say that we bear witness to the hurt, horror, and heartache all around us, even as we recognize the care, creativity, and compassion of the God who has never once abandoned this world, the God who showed up in a body once and who's been present in spirit always and who is putting things and will put everything back together and is coming to return. He is reconciling all things, Paul says, to himself and each of us with one another. And so hope says, resist the temptation to despair and resist that draw towards denial. And instead, hope says, recognize that things aren't as they should be and they aren't as they will be and they won't stay this way forever. Know that even when it's difficult for us to see why or when or how or if things could be any different, that there is one who is undaunted and unworried and actively reworking and restoring bad decisions and unwanted wounds in ways that surpass our loftiest imagination. You see, hope is staring evil in the face and looking God in the eye and knowing in your heart that ultimately only one of them will win. And hope is confidence that God has not abandoned this world. And hope knows that what isn't yet will be one day. And it's in that sense that hope sustains and empowers us. It's in that sense that hope is a gift that waiting can produce. See, waiting is an experience that gives us the opportunity to flex our hope muscles. But how? How does this happen? How do we let waiting produce this beautiful thing called hope in us? How do we receive the gift of hope, especially if any hope we have feels small or absent? Well, I have just a few suggestions in the time that remains. First, hope seems to me to be a matter of perspective. Again, think about the main imperative in Jesus' teaching today. He gives the words, watch, look, be attentive. I'd argue that hope comes from what we see, or more specifically, hope comes from the way we see. It's a matter of perspective, which means one way to cultivate hope is to talk with someone whose perspective is different from your own. Someone who has another vantage point, someone who sees things in a way that you don't see. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, 2021 was without question or competition the hardest year of my life. Uh, dreams and relationships that had been years in the making crumbled in just about a month. Uh, my sadness was overwhelming. I felt a whole lot of shame for a lot of reasons. It was thick. I did not leave my room for a while. All I really had energy to do was to play this dumb phone game that was like a makeover thing, and then you'd slide the little fruit and line them up, and they'd explode. You know what I mean? Josh, my roommate, would come and check to make sure I'm still alive on the top floor. Uh, it was rough. And so after a few months, I attended a week-long residential therapy program outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and in many ways, that week started my process of healing. Well, that program ended on a Wednesday, and then I drove down from Nashville to Atlanta, Georgia, to stay with some dear friends that weekend. We saw Hamilton, it was great. I uh, went to church with them on Sunday, and then on Monday, I was scheduled to have a meeting with a pastor in that city who I really respect, Monday afternoon meeting. And I don't know about you, but sometimes... When I'm around someone I really trust or really respect, someone who feels safe to me, I'll just start saying things. I don't know if that's anyone else, I just start chatting. So as soon as that meeting ended, I think it was a classic overshare, but I am pouring out my heart to this man. 
I told him all about the workshop in Nashville. I mentioned all the things that hadn't been going well. I mentioned all the fears that I still had about how things might turn out, these frustrations, how heavy everything has been. I'm saying it all to this guy as he's trying to walk to his car. <laughs> and he replied to me, said, Tyler, I am so glad you can sort through all this while you are so young. And for a 31-year-old type A achiever, capital type A achiever, that is exactly what I needed to hear. Because he gave me perspective I didn't have. He reminded me that nothing was over, not all is lost. He had that perspective from his vantage point to see what I couldn't see in my own story, and he reminded me of it. His words kindled hope in me during a season of long and difficult waiting where I did not have a clear vision for the future. So, are you discouraged in parenting? Perhaps there's a parent further down the path with some perspective that could breathe life into your situation. Do you feel stuck in a relationship? Maybe someone you know has a different take. Are you burnt out at work? Convinced you'll always be alone? feeling stuck with no way forward, you see the beautiful thing about a church is that it's filled with people with different perspectives who can see the circumstances of your life with fresh eyes and offer hope. How do we cultivate hope in waiting? Well, one way is by asking others who have a different perspective because hope is a matter of perspective. And it's also a matter, I'd say, of interpretation. I'd say hope is born in the ways that we choose to organize the details of our lives into a coherent story. Because all of us have stories that we tell ourselves. All of us have ways we make sense of what's going on in our lives, ways we assemble the raw data and details of our experiences into a narrative that makes meaning for us. And I think some of the work that Jesus is doing in Mark 13, at least some of it, is giving his disciples a different narrative, a different interpretive framework to understand the difficulty that they're about to walk through. He says, I'm not going to let you write a story that has an ending where you're forgotten and go away. I'm going to remind you that even though the details are going to get darker, this story has an ending that is good for you. He wants them to see that whatever challenges come their way, they're neither doomed nor alone, nor forgotten. I think this is where the illustration of the fig tree comes in, that instruction to look for small signs of approaching summer. I think Jesus is inviting us as we're looking for the details of our lives and arranging them into stories to recognize the reminders, both big and small, that God leaves for us to find that reminds us of his nearness and his presence and his goodness and his commitment to us. You know, when I was thinking about stories with kind of humble details, it made me think of the Christmas story itself that we just saw here. A stable with livestock, shepherds from a field, fleeing to another country as happens when Mary and Joseph and Jesus have to run to Egypt. I mean, there are ways that you could stitch together the details of Jesus' arrival on earth to a narrative that hardly has a hopeful ending. You could put them together in that way if you wanted. Of course, the writers of the gospel had the benefit of hindsight when they wrote them down for us. They arranged them differently. But the story of Jesus' birth, I suggest, can teach us or suggest to us that even the humblest of details can come together to compose the most beautiful, redemptive story. So what about you? 
What story are you telling yourself about yourself? How are you connecting the details of your life right now? There's, I don't know much, and there's too many folks in this room, I don't know much about all your lives, but I know this, I'm confident of this. There is a way that the details of your life fit together in a way that totally corresponds with reality, that does not have an ending that is bad for you. Because of the things that I'm convinced of, one that I'm really confident in is that there is a God who made the world and has not abandoned it and cares about it and is actively working for the good of those he loves. And so there is always a way to arrange the details of our lives in a story that doesn't deny reality and doesn't cause us to pretend, but allows us to see that, man, even this story some way, somehow could result in an ending where not everything is lost. And that, my friends, is hope. So how do we cultivate hope? Well, it's a matter of perspective. We can get other people's perspective. It's a matter of interpretation. We have to think about the stories that we're telling ourselves. And finally, how do we cultivate hope? I'd suggest by coming to the table, by sharing this sacred meal together. Uh, Frederick Buechner, a hero, faith hero I discovered, uh, and whose books I have devoured during my time at UCC, once made this observation about the symbols of the great religions of the world. Here's what he said. He said, a six-pointed star, a crescent moon, a lotus, the symbol of other religions suggests beauty and light. The symbol of Christianity is an instrument of death. It suggests, at the very least, hope. You see, when we come to the table every week and we say these words a lot, we say that we are remembering Christ's death until he comes. We are sharing in a meal that points us back to that final meal that Jesus shared with his closest friends before his arrest and his crucifixion. And so, and we do so at this church with that symbol of our faith. I saw it on the piano today with that symbol on our faith in front of us, which was a Roman execution uh, instrument, which is, as Frederick Buechner says, a, a symbol of hope. And why a symbol of hope? Because it reminds us that at the center of our faith is an unwavering conviction that death does not have the last word. That when things seem that they are doomed beyond redemption, there is always the possibility of resurrection, that something better is coming. I wonder if that's why Mark tells us that while Jesus and his disciples shared this last meal, Jesus told them, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Because they, before they experienced something more terrible than they could imagine, Jesus reminded them that he would return, that he would make everything right. It's the kingdom of God after all. And I, for one, take comfort in knowing that when we see him again, it sounds like he's bringing drinks. <laughs> so, gosh, thank you. That was not my best joke, but I'll take it. So today, today, in whatever place you find yourself today, may you receive the gift of hope. And may you see with fresh eyes the reminders of God's presence and goodness in the midst of your current circumstances. May you be sure that God has not forgotten you. And may you be surprised by the beauty that this season of waiting can produce in you.